It's on. Okay, it says it's live, so you can go ahead and start if you want. Okay, noon. Continue, air, sun, sea, Nova. Your word is like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Taking an oath that I will follow your righteous law. Suffered much, served my life. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. Teach me your laws. Though I constantly think I might not forget the law. It has set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from the precepts. Statutes are mine forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set in your degrees to the very end. Okay. That was it. Let's see here. Uh Today is, I don't know, the 8th? Anybody? 8th all day. 8th all day. Okay, so today is the 8th of April. We'll see if we can find that. He says we are live, so we're good to go there. Thank you. Let me let him know that I know, because otherwise he might well, he, email. Well, he might. I don't think he's listening. I think he just, they're, he's watching a movie, and he's just making sure that it comes up live. So I don't know if he hears or not. Um, let's see here. 8 April. One more week is IRS Day. Yes, IRS Day is next week. If you haven't paid your taxes, you can get an extension. Okay, um, they have a little in common with one another. They had little in common with one another. Dwight L. Moody, the famous evangelist, had two very different sons. William Moody and his younger brother Paul were both dearly loved by their father, yet they had little in common with one another. William, 10 years older than Paul, was quite moody. I, it was a joke. Uh, he grew up to be serious and formal with the uh, conservative theological beliefs. Paul, a theological liberal, had a very easygoing nature and a reputation as a practical joker. In addition to the large campaigns for which he was so well known in his later years, D.L. Moody shifted his focus to Christian education as a tool to bring the gospel to the masses. In 1879, Moody started Northfield Seminary for Girls, and in 1881, Mount Hermon School for Boys in his birthplace of Northfield, Massachusetts, where he had resettled a few years earlier. His home was on the campus of the Girls Seminary. They became known as the Northfield Schools, which remains their formal title today. Probably very liberal would be my guess nowadays, but who knows. He loved these schools dearly and threw himself into planning, building, developing, and managing them. Then in 1887, Moody launched the Bible Work Institute of the Chicago Evangelization Society, renamed Moody Bible Institute shortly after his death. Both William and Paul graduated from Yale. Moody intended that his sons would jointly manage the Northfield schools after his death. With Will in charge of Mount Hermon School and Paul Northfield Seminary. However, soon after their father's death, the brothers became estranged, their differing theologies causing them continual conflict. Sounds like uh, Liberty with uh, the two brothers that are in charge of Liberty. Believing that Paul would change the school's theology if he could, Will decided to force Paul out of leadership by consolidating the two schools. On April 8, 1912, a bill proposing the merger was presented to the Committee on Mercantile Affairs of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and was passed. Paul was in Chicago at the time and did not have a chance to vote his opinion. 
Will ended up serving in a general leadership capacity over both the Northfield Schools and the Moody Bible Institute. He also published the first official biography of his father's life. Paul achieved a distinguished career for himself outside of the Moody Enterprises, becoming an influential voice in the liberal wing of the American Protestantism. He graduated from Hartford Theological Seminary and became a pastor of a church in Vermont. During World War I, he served as senior chaplain of the American Expeditionary Forces. After the war, he served as president of Middlebury College for 21 years. Like his brother, Paul published a biography of his father's life. Whereas the Northfield schools evolved into a typical New England private academy, Moody Bible Institute became America's premier Bible institute. By the late 1920s, excuse me, it had 1,000 students in its day and evening programs. In 2000, it had 1,400 day students and 18,000 in its extension and correspondence programs. Moody Bible Institute has trained more foreign missionaries than any other school in the world. Reflection. Do you believe that Will Moody did the right thing by forcing his brother out of the leadership of their father's schools? What would you have done in that situation? Well, it depends. If his brother was the liberal one, which I think is the way it read, then I'd say, yeah, he did the right thing. You got to get him out. Um, What did Paul say? A little yeast yeast leavens the whole lump. So it just depends on which one. When they say liberal here, I'm assuming that they mean the same as liberal today. That was back in the early 1900s, and I would think that even back then, that's the same ideology prevailed. The definition of the word. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's right. But, you know, I mean, at the time, we have, you know, in churches that say they're not liberal, they're very legalistic. So they didn't say the attitude of the two. They just gave a description, a general description. And legalism is just as bad as liberal ideology. They're just as bad. You're going to poison the church. What? What's that? Yeah, it's just as bad. You 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 poison the church by adding in things that aren't in Scripture. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that, which is clearly not reflected in the Bible. And you have the liberal ideology, which is the sappy theology that you see common today, which is you know everything from allowing Black Lives Matter and critical race theory into uh, a church. All of these things are detrimental to the just the sound pure gospel and the sound pure theology of Scripture. So. It just depends on what their terminology is, and I'm assuming that because somebody's writing it in modern days that they are referring to the fact that liberalism was the same back then as it is now. But I don't know that. I don't know what they're, you know, unless they had talked more about what the brothers taught from theology. But uh, anyway, 2 Timothy 3, 5, they will act as if they are religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. You must stay away from people like that. And, uh, you know, it just makes me think, saying liberal theology, it's probably the ideology of people like Cambridge that I cite in the sermons from time to time. They just, they take and they say that the Bible, you know, this was written by somebody much later. This was inserted by a scribe. And they they add in all these comments, which are totally unfounded. And if you just think it through for two seconds, they'll say, well, what they did is they added this into scripture later. And that's why it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem to fit the general tenor of what Moses is saying. Well, the fact is that if somebody's adding something in later, they're going to make it fit. They're not going to not make it fit. It's the exact opposite of what these people say. So liberal theologians just have a desire to destroy Scripture and to say that we can make it say what we want, kind of like people that are uh, believe that the U.S. Constitution is a living 
document, living document, meaning it can change. And that's their idea about scripture. And I would assume that's what this guy's theology was as well. But like I said, legalism is just as detrimental because people will add into scripture, you shouldn't do this or you need to observe this. You know, Hebrew Roots Movement is a perfect example of legalism. They're throwing things into Scripture which are not intended by Scripture, and they're mandating things that were either fulfilled by Christ or have no place in the Bible at all. Even Old Testament, they don't have any any place in the Bible at all. So it just depends on what people are talking about. But if his theology was wrong, I would say we need to make sure that we don't allow his theology into the church or into the establishment of the school either. So, you know, I'm in complete blood may be thicker than water, but it has nothing to do with the soundness of theology. I'll say it that way. We'll go ahead and have a prayer. Let me see if there's any prayer requests that I wrote down. I know that Becky is out of the hospital and she is at home. I got that this morning, so we can praise the Lord for that. Oh, one more thing before we pray. Uh, the comments on the Superior Word website had to be taken down, um, and that's all the way across. A couple weeks ago, I took the comments off of YouTube. I disabled them because we got people that are putting porn links on there, and then you get, of course, trolls in there, which are like Jehovah's Witnesses and all this. And finally, somebody emailed me, and they said, we need to, to not allow these things on there because it's only harming the church. So other than live streaming, where we have moderators online, there are no comments on videos. And the uh, website, we had to take them off because plugins are what allow those things. And plugins come at a price. They always come with somebody in putting in a virus or a tracker or something. And we just had all kinds of problems. The server could no longer handle the website. Sergio spent an entire day and a half moving everything to a new server, had to strip everything clean. And I apologize about that. That was not intentional to harm anybody. It's just that uh, we have a choice. We can either have people commenting, which I always love to read their comments, or and the possibility of having viruses, which we had several, or just taking down the comments. And so that's what we had to do. And I apologize about that. We'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, pray for the people in our lives that are uh, afflicted, that are having troubles and trials. An old friend of mine today, I found out uh, she's. Uh, got cancer, which is metastasized throughout her whole body, and she's probably not going to make it. And uh, thank thank you that she is one of your redeemed. And so uh, she'll be with you uh, hopefully soon without any troubles and without any uh, lengthy uh, debilitating, uh, you know, cancer effects. And uh, if it's your will to heal her, we would pray that first and foremost, because she's a wonderful friend to so many and a mother and a uh, wife. But, uh, Lord, whatever you have for her, we just leave it in your hands. And, uh, Lord, we also do pray for, uh, as a praise, Becky is out of the hospital. We pray for the other people that uh, are having troubles and trials in their lives. We got one family that I don't have permission yet to uh, mention them, but they, the whole family has coronavirus. We pray for them, Lord. We certainly pray in our own hearts for our own family members that are having troubles and trials. And we lift them up to you, Lord. We thank you that you do hear our prayers. And we know that you are there to respond to them according to your wisdom. And so we thank you for that comfort and that reassurance. We pray for this class and that it would be handled properly. And we certainly pray that uh, we would not deceive anybody with bad or false doctrine, but that what we put forth is in accord with your will. And if it's not, I would pray that that would be brought up to people so that they would not have that in their 
doctrine. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we got uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are at. And I think we're in verse, yes, verse 16. So uh, we can get started wherever you want, and then we'll just go from there. Fifteen paragraph. Whatever's good for you. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have stopped giving. Have I have stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. Now read the whole thing again. For this, for this reason. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, all the saints, I I have not stopped. There you go. Giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. Yeah, I figured that was the case. You got the same problem I have. It's called dyslexia, and you take the I and the... Anyway, um, this says basically the same thing. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So it's almost identical. And uh, let's see here. We're in 116. And uh, boy... um, it is common to Paul's letters to have such a statement or a part of such a statement included in the early portion of them, meaning that he prays for his people and he, the bridges are not here. I hope they're okay. If anybody hears anything, let me know because uh, usually they uh, are here for Thursday night and uh, maybe they have family members here in town or I don't know, but we'll pray that they're okay. Let's see here. Um, in some letters, the stress is on the thanks and in others, it is on the prayers. The letter to the Galatians noticeably skips over this general sentiment, though. If you remember Galatians, he didn't have very much good to say to them at the beginning of his epistle, and he was very direct and abrupt throughout the entire epistle because what he was saying was very important. They had fallen away from the pure gospel. They had added in basically Hebrew roots movement theology, the Judaizers of that time. hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and he was very direct. He was abrupt with them, and he uh, let them know that. Uh, uh, you people have got a problem that needs to be fixed. And so he wasn't really the same, uh, you know, general tenor that he is with many of his other letters. Um, he had greater concerns with those in Galatia. He took care of those concerns rather than worrying about smaller issues. With the Ephesians, he notes that he does not cease his words to give thanks for them. He was far distant from them and knew that he may never see them again, but he could communicate with them and hear of their continued faith in the Lord. The previous verse noted that he had heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. That's, once again, a quote from him. And he was overjoyed at this. The knowledge of their steadfastly holding to the gospel, which had been presented to them, was a source of joy and of elation, leading to constant thanks. But more than just thanks, he tells them of his making mention of them in his prayers. He not only thanked God for their current state, but he also petitioned God for this to continue. For them to be strengthened and emboldened in their walk, to be protected and safe from the wiles of the devil, and to be comforted in their trials and tribulations. And that's something we try to do here when we open up is basically the same general tenor for the people in the church. But, you know, there are times where, like Isaac or the people in Kenya will come to mind. And, you know, we want the same for them. And, uh, you know, once in a while you don't hear from them for a couple months and all of a sudden there's a big need. And uh, I'm so thankful for the work that Isaac does over there. The guy's just unbelievable. People are responding. You know, he every year I think he's gone up in in, uh, gifts that have been presented to him despite all kinds of troubles. I mean, he had PayPal troubles for a while and 
They're always cutting something down. But And then the guy gets malaria more often than any of us catch the cold. He gets it all the time over there, and he just works right through it. And uh, so, you know, those are the kind of things that you want to pray for people in their trials and tribulations. He uses the same term, Paul does, making mention in both Romans 1.9 and Philemon 1.4. So he says it three times, making mention of them. Paul was a faithful friend and a heartfelt prayer partner for those he so loved. As far as his constant thanks and prayer, he mentioned there is no reason to not believe it just as he says it. He writes it down. You know, the reason why I put that in there is because I know that when people say something like when I used to be on Facebook, they'd say, well, I send you my thoughts and prayers. And you, you never knew if they were doing that. People just say things all the time, or you'll hear politicians say, our thoughts and prayers are with this person. And the last thing in the world that politician does is go home and get on his knees and pray for the people. He's saying, our thoughts and prayers are for you. Okay. But Paul, there's no reason to not assume that he did. As a matter of fact, there's every reason to assume that he did because he was just that kind of a guy. He was, uh, you know, anyway, uh, this doesn't mean that Paul got on his knees, closed his eyes, and continued to be in thanks and prayer with the exception of taking time to eat or sleep. I've said this before. Paul says, uh, pray without ceasing, or elsewhere he says, pray always. And you can't pray without ceasing when you're walking down the road, okay? I'm talking about on your knees with your eyes closed. And you can't do that when you're driving your car. But you can pray as you're driving your car. You just keep your eyes open when you're doing it, or when you're walking down the road. What's that? Better head, head, mom says. So, uh, yeah, you... you, uh, Burke's got his hand up. This is my prayer, so there, it, it is a continual thing. Always. Absolutely. He's just making prayers as he goes. Yeah. That's right. And praying without ceasing doesn't mean you're praying one prayer all the time. You know, Jesus says, forget the rope prayers and uh, et cetera. But you're, you just, as things come to mind, you just pray about them. That's all. I mean, you know, I'm out picking up the garbage and somebody will interrupt me and we'll talk for a minute. Next thing you know, I turn around and think, you know, oh, this person needs a prayer. And that's just what you do. You don't have to, you are making connection with the Lord. That's all there is to it. You are in Christ and therefore he hears your prayers as much as he hears the prayers of his son, Jesus. Okay. And so you just, you just make your prayers. They don't have to be deep. They don't have to be involved. They just have to be your prayers. So, but before we leave, Mom, I want you to um, I, I want you to remind me to tell you who I was referring to praying at the beginning of this because it's somebody that you know, and uh, she probably doesn't have long. So, uh, yes. You just read about Moody. Oh yeah. One of his deacons saw him crossing the street, and he stopped in the middle of the street and prayed. He said he lowered his head and prayed. He watched him, and he said there was a dark cloud entered between me and the Lord, and I had to get that off. Oh boy. Now, you know, well, that's a good way to do it, but probably not in the middle of the street. Well, you know. must have been a little yeah. medium or Oh, well, that's right. <laughs> if you're at a medium, you can stop and pray, you know, but you don't want to interrupt traffic or anything like that. But that's funny that, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, George Washington was apparently a great prayer person. And uh, there were the, you had the Quakers and the Shakers and all these different, uh, you know, bands of people back then. And one of them was on the British side. And he, uh, he uh, was out in the woods one day. I don't want to get this too wrong, but this is the general tenor of what I heard. He was out in the woods one day, and while he was walking, he overheard somebody praying. And he 
got close enough to the person he saw it was George Washington. And after he was done listening, he ran home to his wife and he says, all is lost. All is lost. We cannot win this war when a man like that prays the prayer that I heard. So, you know, there are times where you get on your knees and you pray and you really pour out your heart to the Lord. And there's times where you just, it, it's every situation is different. But as mom warned you, do not pray with your eyes closed when you're driving in your car. Anyway, I just thought that was a wonderful uh, story of Washington's faithfulness in prayer. Um, you know, one thing, I, seeing as how I brought it up, I might as well tell you this. From time to time, you will hear that all of the founding fathers were deists. Has anybody heard that before? Okay, you hear it, you read a commentary, and all these liberal people are saying they were a bunch of deists, and I will tell you that you can know very easily if a person is a deist or not. Does anybody here know what deism teaches? That's right. God wound up the clock and he left. He has nothing to do with anything that goes on in the universe. He created and that was it. That was God's role. And deism means that we are in control of our own destiny and whatever we make of it, that's fine. And when we're gone, you know, deism, there's no intimate connection with God. A deist will never do one thing. What will a deist never do? Pray. He will never pray because God does not intervene in the affairs of man to a deist. I don't care which person you talk about from our founding fathers, every one of them was known as a prayer person. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, the deist of deists, according to the liberals, said when they were having the Constitutional Convention, they were having a breakdown in establishing the Constitution of the United States of America. And he stood up in front of all of them, and he says, we have gone through a great struggle where we were praying to God without ceasing every morning and every evening in this battle to establish this nation. And he says, I've been sitting here looking at that chair over there. It had a, a sunrise carved into the top of it. And he says, the, the sun is rising over this nation, but we will not be able to found this nation unless we continue in the same prayer for the establishment of a constitution as we did for winning the battle. And they took up prayer after that, and the Constitution was finally uh, done. It was ratified. It went to the states. They ratified it and became a nation. But Benjamin Franklin could not have said that if he was a deist. It's impossible because they did not believe in communing with the Almighty. So when you listen to these people that say these things, don't believe them. People have an agenda to diminish the Christian foundation of this nation. They were all minus one or two. They were all sound Christians, all of them. So don't let that kind of stuff get you down. Um, okay, Paul didn't get on his knees and close his eyes and continue to be in thanks and prayer with the exception of taking time to eat or sleep. Rather, as he worked, as he walked, as he contemplated the many fruits of his labors, he took the time to thank God and pray for those he was so intimately connected to. It is reflective of his own admonition to those in Thessalonica to pray without ceasing. As I said, that's 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So, um, let's see here. Later in his epistle, he will speak of spiritual warfare in great detail. He knew that a part of the warfare was to continue in praise to God and also to continue in petition to him, just like Benjamin Franklin did. They're in a spiritual warfare over the establishment of a nation. It's not going to get done, or it's going to be very sloppily done, if they don't petition the Lord to direct their affairs. Paul understood that. Our founding fathers understood that. We all should understand that. If you've got something 
big starting or coming in your life, the first thing you should do is pray about it. I know two people that are in Israel, and that's what they do. Every single decision they make. If they're going to go to this place today, they're going to pray about it. If they're going to establish something, they're going to pray about it. If they're going to start a project, they're going to pray about it. This is what you do. And if you don't do it, you're leaving the Lord out of the most important aspects of your life. All right? So when I start my sermon, sometimes I'm so tired from Sunday. I work, you know, very hard and long days on Sunday. I get home and finally I go to bed and I just crash. And I wake up the next day and I'll start uh, my sermon typing. And sometimes I forget and I'll be into verse one or two and I'll say, Lord, I didn't pray today for your guidance. You know, and but that's you need to pray about those things because you're getting into a, a an aspect of your life that needs his direction, whatever it is. So uh, he'll speak of spiritual warfare. He knew that a part of that warfare was to continue in praise to God, also petition him. In particular, see verse 618 concerning this. You have that? You want to turn to that? Because I've got this whole thing on my lap here, and I'm, you'll get there quicker than I will. 618. I mean, probably, yeah. 618. And pray in the spirit on all occasions in all kinds of prayers and requests. This is mine. Be alert and always keep on praying. All the same. There you go. <laughs> also for me, for I open my mouth. Words may be given to me. I will fearlessly history of good. Oh, then cut you off again. Oh, that's okay. Good stuff. Now remember to read louder because I don't know if they can hear you, and I don't want them to email me and say, "Hey, we couldn't hear Jim when he was reading." Make that's sure you. Like, that's never happened. Well, I just make sure you read nice and loud because I don't want anybody to do it. I don't want people to be gypped on the Bible study. Um, life application here. Even though God already knows the end from the beginning, people will use this with prayer. They'll use it with salvation. They'll use it with every possible issue. You know, uh, Calvinists will say that uh, uh, we, uh, we don't have free will and God knows the end from the beginning and therefore our free will is not involved in the matter. And that is absolutely ridiculous. Just because God knows the end from the beginning does not mean that we have free will and we have to make a choice in the matter of salvation. And the same is true with prayer. If we think that God knows the end from the beginning and therefore our prayers are ineffective, what that means is that God is not hearing your prayers because you are not praying, okay? And he knew that you wouldn't pray and therefore he has no response to your prayers that you didn't pray. The fact is that just because God knows the end does not mean that you do not have a responsibility in the process. If you have that attitude that your prayers won't change anything because because God already knows, then you are the one that are consigning yourself to not having answered prayers. Only you, because he knew you wouldn't make that prayer, okay? He's waiting for us to act. He's not waiting for us to sit on our hands and let him do everything, okay? Jesus would have been wasting his time, wasting his time praying out three chapters of prayer in John, what is it, 14 through 17 or 13 through whatever, yes. I mean, the high priestly prayer is a model prayer. I mean, he, he, he does all kinds of things in that prayer that lead us to the knowledge that prayer needs to be spoken out. And what did he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh, dad already knows what's going on. I don't need to do this. It's crazy thinking that people would go through that mental exercise to try to diminish either the process of salvation or the process of prayer. God expects us to pray in order for him to respond. That's all there is to it. Just because he knows whether we will or we won't, 
doesn't make any difference in the end. We have to do those things. Okay. People that feel that are feeling it because they, you know, they have a concept of, okay, I'm going to pray and I want this. Right. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So well, it's like, well, he's not listening to me. Yeah, that's right. Well, he gave you this over here. So. That's right. Uh, you know, your prayer may or may not be answered in the way that you want it, but God heard your prayer. So that's all there is to it. And sometimes things happen that uh, uh, you might not have wanted in your prayer and then come to find out 20 years later, it's exactly what should have happened. And you realize, boy, if I got what I wanted, that never would have happened. This person would never have come to Christ or whatever. And so he is hearing our prayers. And if our prayer is something that's heartfelt, he may even reveal to us why he didn't respond to that prayer. And then we will have the answer as to why he didn't Anyway, so whatever is going on in people's minds to think those type of things, they need to not do it, okay? You need to open your mouth. You need to pray. Or, you know, sometimes you can't open your mouth because uh, you're in a room surrounded by people. The Lord hears your prayers. He searches the hearts and the minds. That's right. Searches the hearts and minds. And if you are there praying with your mind, he is going to hear that prayer. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him, okay? Three categories of answers. Yes, no, and wait. Wait. Well, that that is true. <laughs> yes, no, and wait. But there there is also the uh, the uh, unresponded to prayer that uh, you know. Yes, no. Let me hang on. I I have an answer to that. Yes, no, and wait. Um, there is a fourth category. I was thinking this through uh, recently with somebody. Um, I'll, I'll I'll remember what I said. Yeah. Anyway, but it is true. There are a we may not be privy to those things in this life, though. Um, anyway, I, I, I've got an answer to expand on that thought because somebody asked me about exactly that, and I don't remember off the top of my head, and I don't want to uh, take the whole class to try to remember what I was said, but you're... you're uh... Tickled your brain. Yes. Okay. Um, God already knows the end from the beginning, even though the plan is complete in his mind. This should not lead us to a fatalistic view of life where prayers are ignored. Rather, our prayers are figured into the plan just as our free will calling on Jesus is figured into the plan. If we do not receive Jesus, we will not be saved. Likewise, prayers that are unuttered can never be heard. God's foreknowledge of all things outside of time factor in our actions within the stream of time. Pray, okay? That is the, the admonition for that verse. Pray. Okay, having said that, and this just came to mind, and I thought I would tell you this. Um, you know, I listen to Christian music from time to time. Sometimes it gets a little sappy, and, you know, the older hymns can be great, um, whatever. Um, I don't know much about the band itself. So if somebody doesn't like this band, or if they know something bad about it, please forgive me in advance, okay? Somebody sent me a movie. Uh, about the band Mercy Me. Has anybody heard of the band Mercy Me? Okay. Uh, they did, apparently, even within secular um, society, they did a, a song that is like in the very top of all songs ever in the history of the world called I Can Only Imagine. Okay, you've probably heard it. I have been, I can tell you, I've done many uh, funerals for friends, for friends, children that have died, etc. that they don't know the Lord. And I can tell you that this song, I've heard it at almost every funeral I've ever been to. Whether the people were pagans, they played this song, okay? 
So it's a very popular song. She sent me a movie about the making of that song. What inspired it to be written? What was going on in the the life of the person that wrote it and sang it? Okay, it was a great movie. I, you have seen it? Okay, Burke is shaking his head and he enjoyed it too. I can tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, on uh, Resurrection Day, we could not have a Resurrection Day meal because Hedico worked. I worked until late. And so uh, we waited until Tuesday when she was off. Okay. And um, uh, we had that on Tuesday. It was, we got something sent to us by uh, Mike and Debbie out in Los Alamos. They sent us a, a meal and we had it together on Tuesday night with Thor and with Faith. And we all watched the movie together. And I know that everybody had tears in their eyes. It was a very good movie. I've got it on DVD. Okay, so if somebody here wants to watch it, just let me know and I will bring it in and give it to you on Sunday. All right, it, it was a very good movie. And the thing, it, what came to my mind was the concept of prayer. There wasn't a lot of prayer in the movie except for the person whose life was changed. And I don't want to give too much away from it, but it wasn't the guy that wrote the song. It was an effect on a person in his life that had a big impact on his own life that was changed. And the person finally, I, I, I don't want to say more because I don't want to give away the movie, but um, it, it was very good. If you want it, let me know and I can bring it to you either missions on Saturday or um, uh, I can bring it to church on Sunday. Okay. And that has to do with prayer. And that's why I added that in, not to give a plug to the movie, because once again, I don't know anything about the band other than the movie I saw, but it was very good. Okay, 117. I keep asking you, out of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. Okay, this one reads the same, that the God of our, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So, uh, differently worded, but same, same idea. The uh, wording in this verse is rich in Christological significance. In the previous verse, Paul said that he did not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians, making mention of them in his prayers. Now he explains what the substance of those prayers are. They form a prayer that is beautifully worded and suitable for use by anyone who yearns for the rich understanding of the work of Christ. He begins with, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the prayer is directed to God the Father. It is thus a reference to the humanity of Christ as our mediator to God the Father, while at the same time it highlights Christ's deity. As God is infinite and as we are finite, there is an infinite gap between the two. I tell people this, and sometimes it helps them to process. When I'm telling them about Jesus, and I, they start getting into all of the reasons why God is going to accept them, and then you bring in the fact that God is infinite, you are finite, and you have committed a sin against an infinite creator. How are you going to resolve that? And sometimes people actually clue in, oh, I see. And all of a sudden, they understand their need for a mediator that is both finite and infinite the God-man, Jesus Christ, okay? Um, I was listening to The Bible in 10, that guy that does that podcast I recommended a while ago. He, it's in a British accent, and it's always very good. And he brought up a point. I remember that I brought this point up in a sermon as well years ago, and I'd forgotten this. But um, if uh, you take any religion on this planet, I don't care what religion it is, every single one of them, every one of them is about 
our ability to make the relationship with God work. Every single one of them. And every false branch of Christianity does this as well. Our ability to make the relationship happen between us and God. And when I bring in Hebrew roots, which I bring in all the time, it is because they are making the way back to the Father. They are working their path to him. The Jehovah's Witnesses do the same. The Mormons do the same. You know, any false gospel, any false teaching in a church will always be us-centered and directed towards working towards God. And what is that? When, when that happens, what is that? It begins with I and ends with Y. Has idolatry in the middle. Idolatry. That's right. Okay. That that is self-idolatry. Every single religion on this planet is I am the source of my salvation. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Any, I don't care if you go into a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church, a I don't care what church you go into, if they say that this is something that you need to do in order to be right with God, then it is self-idolatry. It is working your way back to God when God has done all of the work. There is nothing that we can add to it, okay? And so when we are praying these prayers here and we're talking about the nature of God, he is infinite, we are finite, there's nothing we can do. It is impossible to bridge that gap. So there's no point in even trying. That's why we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. He did the work. He did every single thing that is necessary for us to be saved. And we receive what he did. And that is how salvation comes about. That is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. Okay? We have no part in the process of our salvation at all, with the exception of receiving it. And that is not an active part. That is a passive part. We receive his work. So when you go to a church, or if you're a part of a church, and the pastor is telling you that there is something you need to do, I don't care how insignificant it seems, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a self-centered ideology. So please remember that. I'll read this again now. He begins with, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer is directed to God the Father. It is thus a reference to the humanity of Christ as our mediator to God the Father, while at the same time it highlights Christ's deity. As God is infinite, and as we are finite, there is an infinite gap between the two. Hence, our works can never work into an infinite. It will never happen. No matter how long we try, infinity is always out of our grasp, okay? Christ Jesus is the bridge between us. He is the finite in his humanity, and he is infinite in his deity. He alone is that bridge that has made it possible to be reconciled to God the Father, okay? He is the one to carry our prayers across that infinite divide, and he is the one to bring the answered to those prayers back into our finite realm. Now, that was pictured in the tabernacle. It's a little hard to see it, especially when you're dealing with uh, temporal things and physical things, but that was seen in the typology of the tabernacle when every single day the priest would go into the holy place, not the most holy place, and he would do something in there. What would they do every single day? Incense. They would have incense, and the veil was there. It's like that infinite block between us and God. And one thing, and one thing alone got through that veil was the wafting of the incense. It would go right through that veil and it would get to God the Father. And that veil is said in the book of Hebrews to be the body of Christ. No, the veil is the body of Christ, which is his body, it says. 
You see the symbolism? The incense goes to Christ in his humanity, and it goes through Christ in his deity to God the Father. And so that is the symbolism. It's hard to see that because we're looking, like I said, temporal things. We're looking at physical objects, but the incense flows into nothingness to our eyes. And so God was giving us that picture of our prayers going from the finite us through Christ and to the infinite Father. Okay? Without Christ, that cannot happen. It doesn't matter how long you pray. It doesn't matter how much you love God. It doesn't matter. Any of those things are irrelevant. Without Christ, to mediate what we are doing before our Father, it will never get to him. All the work in the world is useless without him, okay? And that's a wonderful picture if you can see that in your mind, okay? all the religions that have works. The question I always ask them is like, okay, well, who's, who arbitrates that you have reached Yeah, point? who is the arbitrator? Who is like, that's right. Point them out to me because I didn't want to talk to them. Well, the finger always goes back here, right, always. Right. You, you know, know, some people say it's a know. bell curve. Some people say it's a step you know, rating, whatever. But you're right. There, who is arbitrating your decision about God? Who is it that's made up that decision? And ultimately, the finger goes right back to you. You made that up. That's out of your own delusion. And that is insufficient. I'm sorry. It's the infinite nature of God is what establishes our understanding of why we desperately need Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Okay. He is finite in his humanity, and yet he is infinite in his deity. He is the one to carry our prayers across that infinite divide, and he is the one to bring the answer to those prayers back into our finite realm. God is out here. There's no change in God at all. He doesn't get happy. He doesn't get angry. He is. God is, and Christ is the one that brings that back into the stream of time and allows it to happen in our lives, such as the mediatorial role of Christ between the perfect and infinitely holy creator and his falling creatures. And think about it. Because God is infinite, we can your sins have separated from you, uh, your, you from your God so that he cannot hear. The Bible says that explicitly. He cannot hear. But when you are clothed in Christ, he's not hearing you anymore. He's hearing your petition through Christ. Christ is the mediator, and that is who he is hearing. He hears because of Christ not despite Christ or not in addition to Christ or anything like that. Your prayers are solely reaching the infinite God because of Christ. He is that mediator for us. And without that, no prayer will ever reach the ears of God, ever. Okay, so I know that people say, well, that's just cold. That's just harsh. You know, what about all these billions of Muslims that pray all over the world? What about the Buddhists and their prayers? I am sorry. They are unheard because their sins have separated them from their God. That is why we send missionaries to those places in the world, and people are willing to give up their lives, their families, everything, to get that message out. It's because it may seem unfair to us, but it is the only way that this will ever happen and change those people so that they can be heard by God. It's the only way, all right? After this, Paul calls him the Father of Glory. However, the English fails to include an important definite article. Young's literal translation rightly says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of the glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the recognition of him. This is why I like Young's. People are always, I get this email at least once a week, sometimes two or three, what's the Bible translation that you think is the best? I always tell them, it's very hard to read. You're going to struggle with it, but I 
hands above all others is Young's literal translation of the Bible. There are some that do a very good job, don't get me wrong, but Young's is the closest that you will find to the original. But you got to go back in a, a you know, a, a long way in English, I'm talking about ye old English, to read it. And uh, so it's a little hard to follow, and plus it's very stuffy, because if you're making something literal, it gets stuffy. But Young's not always. I mean, I have found things in there that he does not include that he should have, but almost always he includes the articles when they are necessary. The father of the glory. Very few, if any other translations added that in. Okay. <clears throat> the words are the father of the glory. This is speaking not of the glory of the father, which is unseen, but the glory of Christ, which is seen. Everybody see that article makes all the difference in the world. The glory of God the Father is revealed through the Son. Just as our prayers go up to the Father through the Son, the glory of God is revealed to us through the Son. All right? In the Old Testament, it was the glory of the Lord, Jehovah, that was seen. Jesus is the incarnation of Jehovah. This is where lots of bad theology come into play, especially with the Jehovah's Witnesses and people like that, but you're going to find it in many other cults and sects as well. You will find that they diminish the deity of Jesus in one way or another to the point where it's almost obscured to the fact that he is Jehovah. He is the one that spoke in the Old Testament. He is the one that dealt with Abraham. He's the one that was there at the announcement of the birth of Samson. And all the way through the Old Testament, it is Christ. It's not, you know, God out there because God out there is infinite and he doesn't have this intimacy with his creation the way that we do because of Christ. So we need to make sure that we understand when we are dealing with God interacting with people, he's doing it through Christ. Okay, this can be substantiated by referring to Acts 7, where the same term, the glory, is used by Stephen. <laughs> it says in... um. Uh, this thing. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, which it should be the glory, okay, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. This is found in Genesis 12, 1, and it is speaking of the Lord. It is the same Lord who appeared to Abraham at other times, including in human form, just prior to the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 18, 1. In the New Testament, this Glory was revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Okay, it specifically says that where, Burke? We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes. Where is it? John chapter verse. Yeah, that's right, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you go to 1 John 1, and I believe he says it right up at the beginning of it as well. I didn't record that one here, but we'll go there really quickly and see if we can. Oh, you know, I was using bleach again, and when you use bleach, you wear off the end of your fingers, and you can't, you have nothing to grab your pages with. Uh, okay, let's see here. Um, uh, where That's not what I'm looking for, but. It still gives the same sense, even though it doesn't say the glory here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Well, he spoke of the glory of the word of life in John 1. He's speaking of the same thing here. So uh, that's 
what I was thinking of, but it just doesn't mention the glory specifically. Anyway, so we've got that, and then uh, it is this Father of the Glory, the Father of the Glory, meaning the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul petitions. His prayer is that he, this is Paul, may give to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The term spirit here, according to the scholar Alford, is neither exclusively the Holy Spirit nor the spirit of man, but the complex idea of the spirit of man dwelt in and moved by the spirit of God. This is correct. The prophets and apostles used their own knowledge as they wrote, and yet their writings also reflect the working of the Holy Spirit in them. If you read Jeremiah, and then you get to, you know, move over to Ezekiel for a couple chapters and then go back to Jeremiah, you can see the difference between the two. And after a while, even if you haven't read the whole book of Jeremiah, you get into the rest of the Bible and somebody takes you to a chapter you've never read in Jeremiah, say Jeremiah 31 or 32, you're going to say, that sounds like Jeremiah the prophet. You just know it, even if you've never read it before, because you've read some of Jeremiah and you're familiar with it and you say, that's that prophet. Okay, and the same thing is true with Isaiah, and the same thing is true with Jonah. Each one of these prophets wrote in their own unique style, and yet it's inspired by God. The two are working as one. I say this from time to time because you want to have a, a tangible way of understanding that concept is that a person writes a piece of music, and you can tell that that person wrote that piece of music. Even if you've never heard the music played, you can say, that is definitely the music of, we'll say, Mozart. And then somebody else plays Mozart. You have a favorite band that plays Mozart, or I guess you'd call it a band, what do you call it, a chorus or a symphony. You have a favorite symphony that, from Germany, and they play Mozart, and you know that it's that symphony orchestra. Even if you've never uh, actually uh, watched all of them play, you just hear their music, and you can say, I know that that person that plays that violin, and I know that person that plays that particular instrument. That is my favorite uh, symphony from Germany. And then you look at the label, and sure enough, it's them. You have two things completely different. You've got a writer, and you've got a player, and yet they're working together. And you can do that with your favorite guitarist. You can do that with your favorite singer. You can say, that's my favorite singer singing my favorite writer. And you just know it, even if you've never heard it before. That is what is happening in the Bible. You have the inspiration of the Spirit influencing somebody like the writer, and yet the writer is writing their own things out, just like the person that's singing the song. It's a harmonious working together. So the prophets and apostles use their own knowledge as they wrote, and yet their writings also reflect the working of the Holy Spirit in them. Although our thoughts and words are not inspired, despite many pastors in the pulpit every Sunday, and thus to be considered as scriptural, Paul is asking that the same moving of the Spirit will work in our spirit to reveal to us the truths which are laid out in Scripture. The work of the prophets and apostles was for the writing of Scripture. The use of those Scriptures are for our understanding of what has been written. So they did their job, we're doing our job right now, and somebody is competent and they write a sermon, and they happen to find something that wasn't previously presented, and it's valid, then that is the Lord working through them and through Scripture to bring something to light that has not been seen before, okay? So um, in this spiritual working, Paul asks that it be directed to wisdom. This is the gift of knowing what is sound and proper in the interpretation of God's word. 
I watched a very good five-minute Prager University video a day ago. It was on knowledge and wisdom, okay? Um, a, a guy did it. I can't remember who he was. I think he's, believe it or not, at the University of California in Berkeley. I think that's where he is, but he was obviously a reasonably intelligent person, unlike most of the people out there. And I, I, once again, I don't want to say definitively it was Berkeley, but I think that's where he said he was um, uh, from. And when he talked about wisdom, he brought in the common notion of science. You'll hear people say all the time, well, it's science. We got one guy up in Washington, D.C., a little short guy with a mask on that gets paid more than anybody else in all of the U.S. government. And he says, it's science. It's science. Science is not an end in and of itself. Science is establishing something. It is saying we are going to determine this based on evidence. And some things cannot be determined based on evidence because they happened 5,000 or 5 million or 50 billion years ago. And so we can only make the I'm saying that, yeah, uh, so we can only make deductions based on those things. And so some people will say that happened 50 billion years ago. And another person will say, no, it's clear that that happened within the past 5,000 years. And you're using a scientific method to determine those things. But then he talked about wisdom. Wisdom is taking the knowledge that you have and it is rightly applying it. I wish I could remember who the guy was and what the video was, but it was a really good one. And uh, I just happened to be scrolling through things, waiting for Hitiko to get the, the table set. And I thought, well, it's only five minutes. And so I watched it. And I'm glad I did because it gives me a heart that there is somebody out there that is actually teaching properly in schools. There aren't many left. But anyway, uh, exactly what we're talking about right here. Wisdom. This is the gift of knowing what is sound and proper in the interpretation of God's word. One can read scripture and misapply its contents. This is not wise. Wisdom is found in fearing God and cherishing the right application of his word. Revelation is the actual grasping of what God has placed in his word. One might say, give me the wisdom to see your words revealed to me. You're working with both of them, wisdom and the revelation. Give me wisdom to see your words revealed to me. This revelation, does anybody know what the word revelation means the Greek word apocalypsis, unveiling. That's all it means. It's an unveiling. And so when you read the revelation of Jesus Christ or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And unless you're looking for Christ in that book, everything that you're analyzing is wrong. All of it. It's not correct. I don't care. You read 10,000 commentaries on Revelation and you get the goofiest stuff in the world out there. And I'm telling you, people will abuse that book to the point where it has nothing to do with anything that God has submitted to us. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, okay? And from there, God give me wisdom so that this is revealed to me. This is unveiled to me, all right? That's the point that I'm making there. Revelation is the actual grasping of what God has placed in his words. This revelation that God speaks of is in the knowledge of him. That's Paul's words, in the knowledge of him, meaning Christ. It is asking that we be able to peer into the very heart of Scripture to see Christ revealed. And if you're not doing that, then you're not looking in the right direction. Paul says that these uh, Jewish people that read the law to this day, when they read it, they have a veil over their eyes. They're not understanding what God is telling them. Why? Because they're not looking for Christ. That will always be the case until they are willing to say, I could be wrong, and God may be revealing Christ to me, and I want to see if that's true. And as soon as they do that, God will start revealing. He will start unveiling to them 
because they have now applied wisdom to their understanding of scripture. But, you know, I went one time I was asked by a friend, he's probably dead now. I haven't heard from him in a while and he had very bad cancer and uh, I just stopped hearing from him. So I think he's probably died, but he took me to his synagogue one time. He wanted me to see what it was like in a synagogue. And the rabbi that was in the end, whatever they, we'd call it a pulpit. I don't know what they call it there, but anyway, he gave a talk on David. And I was, oh boy, isn't that wonderful? What he, you know, the, the insights into the word, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He had all these great little insights. And I said, none of them are correct. None of them. He's missed the point because Christ is the picture. And I already knew what that passage was talking about. And I felt so bad sitting there because I felt like standing up and saying, you're missing the boat, buddy. But, you know, I mean, I'm there. I was invited. I was told to not say anything and to just, you know, I just want you to see what happens in a synagogue. But it was all these little tidbits that he's giving his people, feeding them with, and they were all incorrect. And I kept thinking to myself, well, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? You know, wasn't nice. I'm making a joke there, folks. I mean, I'm, I'm, I want you to know I'm not saying that what he was saying was correct. But that's the thought going through my mind. Yeah, hmm, yeah, hmm. He missed everything in it. He missed all of Christ. Anyway, um, so uh, the knowledge of him. It is asking that we be able to peer into the very heart of Scripture to see Christ revealed. In doing so, we see God the Father revealed because it is Christ who reveals him. I say it every Sunday, almost every Sunday. You cannot know Jesus Christ. It is impossible to know Jesus Christ unless you know this word. You cannot know it. Anybody that thinks that they have a relationship with Christ, I'm talking about a close one, without knowing this word is wrong because you cannot know Christ without knowing his word about him. And you cannot know God the Father unless you know Jesus Christ. It is impossible. You can know things about him from general revelation, but you cannot know him and what he is like without knowing Jesus. So unless you know this word, you have no connection to God outside of general revelation. Oh, this is substance, and I can think about God from that. Outside of that, you have no knowledge of what God is like, okay? And when I say substance, you can know a lot about God from substance. You can see squirrels playing, and they're acting in a funny manner. You can say God actually has, in some way, a sense of humor because of the things they do and the things that... They, and God is wise because you can watch that squirrel go and take things, you know a squirrel needs to eat, right? And you think he's going to eat and then he's done for the day, but he's not. He goes and takes those things and he buries them somewhere. And they say that a squirrel can remember hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of places where he's buried things, but he doesn't always get back to them because sometimes squirrels get squashed on the road. Very rare, I know, but it does happen. And so what happens to those things that he buried? They become a tree. And so you see that there's wisdom, not only in God being able to tell a squirrel with a brain this big, that he knows where 400 things are, but how many of those things will never be found by that squirrel again because he's taken out of the picture, gets eaten by an osprey or something else, and what happens? That becomes a new tree, and it develops in a new way. The wisdom of God is seen in everything, and we can deduce that. I don't want to diminish the, the amount of knowledge we can know about God from general revelation, but when it comes to the personal understanding of who God is and what he has done for you as a human being within redemptive history, you cannot know it unless you know Jesus Christ, and you cannot know Jesus Christ unless you know this word. It's all logical, and you need to always remember that. So the lesson for that, before we even finish this verse, is to go read your Bible. In the morning, read it. Think on it during the day. 
And if you have time at lunch, take time and read on it and think on what you read at lunch. And then when you go home, before you go to bed, make sure you read your Bible. Because this is how you have that relationship established and built up in your Creator. Okay? In doing so, we see God the Father revealed because it is Christ who reveals Him. This is the beginning of Paul's petition for the Ephesians, and thus for us, as he writes his words to them. It's only the beginning. Life application. Oh, here it is. We cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. We cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing the source of instruction on who he is, which is the Holy Bible. Therefore, we cannot know God without knowing our Bible. Let us handle this precious gift carefully, looking for God to reveal himself to us through it. You are using wisdom when you pray for revelation in his word. That is what you were doing. And you can even do that before a sermon. Uh, I, I, I better not say it because then it'll be blowing my, my own horn. But uh, when you uh, uh, listen to a sermon, if it's out of the Bible, not one of these cheesy things that people just give in the church. If it's out of the Bible, if it's from Calvary Chapel or from some good church, you know, in uh, North Dakota or over in the Philippines, doesn't matter. If you pray, Lord, let me understand what he is saying. Because if it's a good sermon, he is going to give you a lot of good information and you're not going to retain it all or be able to weave it together the way he did in your mind unless you ask God to do that. Always ask the Lord for him to lead you, whether it's getting up in the morning and starting your day or whether it's, you know, listening to a sermon or reading his word. Lord, open my eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Okay, 118. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, Lord, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Wow, wonderful words. Okay, now that one said heart. What is the heart in the Bible? I've said this in at least five sermons since. It, yes, it is the reasoning, the seat of reasoning and understanding. So instead of saying heart in this one, they say the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And neither is incorrect. Because if you understand the symbolism of the heart, it's not speaking about emotions in the Bible. It's speaking about understanding in the Bible. Okay, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Oh, there's so much in this verse. The first clause is really dependent on the previous verse, so I have to take them together for you. That the God of our, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This then is the continued prayer of Paul, which is being expressed in words. He's actually praying as he's writing. This is his prayer for them and to them, okay? The first clause reads, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The Greek actually reads, as he said, the eyes of your heart. The heart is considered the seat of understanding and the place from which wisdom is derived. Now, you would think it would be just the opposite. The NIV is more of a paraphrase, and the New King James Version is more of a literal translation. And yet, they completely swapped in that particular one. And that's why I highlighted that before I even read my commentary, is because you want to make sure you understand, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of reasoning. But, you know, and I guarantee you, if we go through the New King James Version, you're going to see the heart mentioned 50,000 times in that particular respect. 
and then you're going to see it another 50,000 times where it's not in that respect. And why is that? Why would that be? Translation committee. You've got a, a committee of 50 people and one will do this book, one will do half of this book, one will do... And so you get different people that are translating differently. And if the editor does not catch that, he's going to say, you know, instead of saying, why does it say understanding here and heart here, which is his job is to make sure it's consistent. If he doesn't do that, then you're going to have an inconsistency in the translation. Okay. It's very hard to not have that because there's a lot of uses and they span 66 books of the Bible. But that is why that would be the case. But the NIV, which is more of a paraphrase, you would think would paraphrase it saying understanding. They did not. They said heart, whereas this one says understanding. Okay. And so it's just the way of the, the translation. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Uh, the heart is considered the seat of understanding and the place from which wisdom is derived. This is especially true with spiritual understanding. It encompasses the totality of the inner man. Paul's prayer is that the understanding would flow into them and to fill them. And this filling has a specific purpose. It is, as Paul says, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. This is the calling of God in Christ that carries with it a specific hope. Now, a lot of people have called on Jesus, haven't they? That have never heard of the hope of Jesus Christ. All they know is that they've called on him. You're a sinner. You need a savior. And someday he's going to give you eternal life. They don't know all of the hope and all that's expressed in there because they live in Papua New Guinea and they haven't had a translator yet come and give them a copy of the Bible. And so they have a deficiency in their knowledge of the hope of what Christ is going to do for us. Okay. But that's not a salvific issue. They got saved. They know they need a savior. They know that there's a heaven and a hell. That's all the hope they have. They have a hope that they will no longer be going to hell because somebody in the middle of the world died for him 2,000 years ago, and they believe that message and they're saved. But what Paul is saying is that I want you to have an understanding of that. I want you to have wisdom in that. Okay, so read that again. This filling has a specific purpose. It is so that you may know what is the hope of this calling. Okay, the hope he speaks of is not referring to something hoped for as if it is yet to be attained. Rather, it is the result of our redemption through Christ Jesus. This is what they don't even understand. They're hoping for heaven, but they don't understand what has happened in their own lives. Paul is now as he will be throughout this epistle, speaking of heavenly things, especially when we get from 2.4 through 2.7. He'll talk about that in, in more detail. The hope, let me make sure I gave you the right verses in case you look and I'm wrong. Two, um, three, four. Yeah, okay. That's exactly right. 2.4 through 2.7, okay? Um, he's going to talk about those heavenly things. He's going to talk about them elsewhere, but that's where he's really going to lay it out for you. Okay, um, where was I? Yes, yeah, speaking of heavenly things, the hope of his calling speaks of our eternal inheritance in Christ. It is already secured based on our belief in Christ, even if it is not yet actuated. Does everybody get that one? You already have it. It is given to you. It is yours. The eternal inheritance is yours, even if it hasn't been actuated, because we're living in this life and we're going to die. So obviously we don't actually have it in our grasp, but it is ours. It is done. Okay, let me take you to those verses so you can see this, and then I'll get back to the commentary. I'm just going to start at two, and I'll tell you when we get to four. And you he made alive, this is Christ made you alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's speaking about your life right now, in which you walked 
your past life, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the de desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's John 3.18 right there. John 3.18, if you don't have the son, you're condemned already. You're children of wrath by nature. Okay, verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy, and this is what Paul is praying that they will have their eyes enlightened to in this prayer that we're looking at now. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He didn't stop there, though. And raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's already done in God's mind. We are sitting in the heavenly places with Christ. In other words, salvation is eternal. It is not something you can lose. It is eternal. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that when we get there. Very important verses, but he is saying it is done. We have the hope already. That is what he's referring to. Not what he's talking about. It is a hope as well, but we already have it is what he's talking about. It is done in us. Okay, so um, riches, uh, where was I? Um, uh, yes, uh, okay. The reason for understanding this now, as he, his prayer desires for them, is so that in this world of trouble, we can look beyond the moment to the greater world, the world of glory which lies ahead. The lady that I prayed for, my friend that I've known since I was a little kid, who has now got cancer spread throughout her whole body, I guarantee you that this is what she is thinking about most right now. I guarantee you that. She's, she was a missionary within America. I don't want to give too much away because, you know, but she was a missionary with a Christian group here in America for years. Uh, her hope has always been Christ. But I guarantee you that what she thinks about now is the realization of it. She's looking beyond this life, which she's had to live through, and she's now looking at what is coming, okay, that she already possesses, though. That's the point of what Paul is saying. This is something we have, but we already possess it, and she's clinging on to that, guaranteed. This is, and this is what we should do all the time. This is what we should be doing all the time, not when you get sick and you're ready to die, not when you're in suffering and agony. You should be right now, when you wake up in the morning, saying, I am the redeemed of the Lord, and I have this hope within me right now. If you have that attitude, then when the day comes and beats you up and bad things happen, it's not nearly as important to you. Or when you go to the doctor that afternoon, he says, you've got a big cancer lesion on the inside of your mouth and that's incurable. You're going to say, so what? I'm going to be with Jesus. This is not going to affect you in the same way if you have this hope grounded in you now. And you're not going to have it unless you're in the word and you're in tune with the Lord at all times. Okay. This is revealed in the next clause, which speaks of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In the Greek, of this clause alone, there are eight words in the genitive case. A genitive is a word relating to or denoting a case of nouns and pronouns and words in a grammatical agreement with them, indicating possession or close association. The abundance of genitives shows that glory, this is Vincent's word studies, glory is the essential characteristic of salvation. And this glory is richly abounding 
his inheritance, which is his and his gift. Everybody see that? Paul is using these genitives and he's making a point about it. It belongs to you. This is his glory. This is his gift. And you possess it because of what God has done. This is what we now possess completely and forever. It can never be taken from us as it was given to us with a pledge. Go back and watch last week's study if you don't know what I'm talking about. For this reason, we can walk in this world of woe and have confidence that no matter what happens, our inheritance is secure and it is glorious. You know what? I'll tell you something right now. I just, uh, today, I felt so bad. Even though this was a nasty person, I felt terrible about it. She's been on my mind all day. I think it was this morning I watched it. There's a girl, I probably New York. I'm just guessing. I don't know where the video was, but uh, there's a girl that's in a elevator. And somebody wanted to get into the elevator and she was rude to him, you know, blank, blank, blank out. Okay. And which she shouldn't have done. But then you start seeing why this happened. She's got a mask on and she's literally scared to death. She is scared to death. And she says, how can I maintain my distance with you in here? This is what's happened in the world today. People are literally scared to death. And she finally just, she ran out of there because this person insisted she's filming her for like three minutes. I would have said, you know, turn off your camera and let the girl just go. Okay. It was apparent this girl was scared to death. And I've seen people like this all over the place. Not just the arrogant people. I'm talking about people that I've got, my daughter has a friend that went to school with her, Christian school. And this girl has not left her apartment in a year has not left her apartment. Now, I understand there's mental illness in some people, but this is something that they believe what they're told. They be- and where is the hope in that? The point isn't the, the, the person and their whatever. The point is that there is no hope in that. If you know Jesus Christ, we got a girl we do mission work with who couldn't care diddly about what happens to her. Is, am I right or am I right? This girl could not care. She is totally grounded in Christ, and she just, whatever happens, happens. I've never seen her get scared or fearful of anything. She'll walk right up to somebody that looks like a complete brute and start telling them about Jesus. She doesn't care. She's just unbelievable, okay? Because she has a hope that transcends this world, and she wants other people to have that hope as well, okay? She's my frenemy. We, we get along, and we don't get along at the same time, so I call her my frenemy, but this girl is thoroughly grounded in this part of scripture. She may not know the rest of the Bible very well, but she knows the hope of the calling of Jesus Christ. And if you can maintain that in your life, you're not going to be standing in a elevator scared when somebody walks in, because that was true fear on this girl's face. Okay. I could not believe what I was watching. One, that a person would continue to just violate them with a camera and stand there. And two, that the person would be that scared that they, they have to maintain social distance in an elevator. The whole thing, the whole thing is bad in this world today. And if you don't know Jesus, I don't know how you can get out of bed in the morning. And some people that do know Jesus still struggle with this. And that's why I say these things in this class time and time again. Get grounded and you won't have this fear in your life. It's just a temporary blip. It does blow. Don't get me wrong. I'm not diminishing pain or, you know, any of those things. It blows. But at the same time, if you're grounded, it will not matter. Okay. All right, the riches of what lie ahead are ours now. And so nothing should make us falter in our walk with Christ. Nothing. No matter what force of evil comes against us, a greater greater is he who is in us 
than who is in the world. I don't care if Satan himself walked into here and was able to manifest himself and say he's going to do something terrible to all of us. You know what? Kick him in the... and get out of here. Okay? We should not be afraid of anything. Just right in the old derriere, and I was trying to think of a word that wasn't... Uh, uh, and just right out the door. You know what? Uh, I had a professor up at uh, college, and he was the missions professor, and he said he had terrible, I think it was knee, knee problem. And he said, you know what? I finally talked to the Lord about it, and he says, I don't care if I have to live with this, God, as long as Satan will get a black eye from it. And that was the right attitude to have. Just, I'm going to use this to your glory, oh God. Life application. As the world continues to devolve into wickedness, and I typed this, what, eight years ago or so? It's as relevant or more relevant today than it ever was. Devolve into wickedness. Let our hearts not be troubled. Should we be faced with the horrifying demand of renouncing Christ or losing our lives, let us have the faith of the saints of ages past and say, Nice try, devil, but no thanks. I have a sure hope and a calling which will see you cast into the lake of fire as I sit watching from a heavenly setting. Because that is going to be our right. It's going to be our honor and it's going to be our privilege to watch that happen. We're going to have front row seats to the end of this wickedness in this world because of what Satan has done within the stream of time and, and human existence. Okay, we do have time for one more. Go ahead. It is incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of mighty strength. Okay, this one's a little different. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? towards those who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Now, they use two words, power and strength, and they use power and power here. I don't know, and maybe I made a, a comment on that. If it's two separate words, then these guys should get a demerit. If it's one word, then they should get a demerit, because you want to be consistent with words like that when they're in the same sentence. Okay, so we'll see. Paul continues his prayer here for the saints in Ephesus, and thus us. Concerning the opening of the eyes of our hearts to the magnificence of what Christ has done for us, in this verse he continues with his use of superlatives, beginning with the words, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power. The Greek words for exceeding greatness are used to describe what Paul actually cannot describe. He uses pen and ink in a struggle with the thoughts of his mind to relay to us the immense magnitude of the greatness of what God has done for us. It is this which is now revealed through the mystery of Christ. His words further disclose to us the grandeur of the riches of God's divine grace, which is working in us. The pulpit commentary states that the whole energy, the whole energy of the divine being is turned onto our feeble, languid nature, vivifying, purifying and transforming it, making it wonderfully active where all was feebleness before as the turning on of steam suddenly wakens up a whole mass of inert machinery. Beautiful words from the pulpit commentary. He ought to get an A-plus on his writing of that one. Paul then notes that this immense working of God is towards us who believe. We are the objects of God's marvelous workings in the stream of time and human existence into which Christ stepped. The actual workings will be described in the next verses, but in order to show us the spectacular nature of them, we are given the matchless words of this verse right now, which the pulpit commentary did a great job on. I, oh, I've got to remember that. I want to put that up on my wall, I think. 
that's just wonderfully stated. Um, they they use steam because that the pulpit commentary was written some time ago. But you think of it, steam is pumped into a machine and it just starts coming alive, right? Today we would think of maybe hydraulics. I think hydraulics is probably one of the greatest inventions ever in human history. You got a, a piston and it's got oil in it, and it pushes, and you can pick up things, huge things, huge things with just a motor running and just oil being pushed against these things. I used to rebuild hydraulic pistons when I worked at a place called Mobile Hose. And it never ceased to amaze me when I would take this thing out and there's these little, little, you know, clips that you take off and that you pop that off and there's just rubber gaskets. And you've got all of this pressure. They can go up to tons and tons and tons of pressure. And that's what the pulpit commentary was trying to explain to you. Everything comes alive and everything moves when Christ his power comes into you. And it's just like watching this tracker pick up things that you can't even imagine and sling them over. You know, I go to the scrap ball every Saturday and take the scrap I found on the side of the road during the week. And you see this thing, it'll pick up a car just like it's a toy and it'll throw it 80 feet up onto the top of a big pile of scrap metal. And then the guy will come along and he'll put it in, you know, uh, put it into a truck and they take it away. But a car, you know, we can't even hardly move them. And it just picks up and slings it. And this is just a guy working with two little things. That's all the power that is in there. So the way that they describe that is actually very, very appropriate, even though it's way undermining the glory of what God has done. Okay, Paul then notes that this, oh, I better go on. To complete this preparatory thought, he says that this exceeding greatness of God's power, which is directed towards us as believers, is according to the working of his mighty power. That's Paul's words, according to the working of his mighty power. Vincent's word studies notes that the words his mighty power are insufficient to translate the Greek. Rather, it should be the strength of his might. The word for strength is a word used only, that's what yours says, isn't it? There you go. It is a word used only of God, which denotes both relative and manifested power. The word might, which obviously it's two separate words, and therefore they get a demerit in the New King James Version. The word might refers to indwelling strength, and the word working denotes the active, efficient manifestation of these things. So you've got three things that are working in one, and the New King James Version reduced it to two, and they're not really working strongly. So they really failed in that translation. Taken together, they reveal more than just a latent power but rather an active working of God, which is connected to the words exceeding greatness of his power of the previous clause. As Vincent states, the magnitude of God's power toward believers is known in the operation of the strength of his might. As you can see, Paul's words are very carefully used to reveal to our minds the opulence of God's mighty power working towards us. As stated, the actual use of this power is yet to be described. Paul will list it as he continues to show us the greatness of what God has done in and through Christ the Lord. Life application, and then we'll be done. If Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, struggled with just the right terminology to describe the glorious workings of God in Christ, then we should be attentive to these nuances and contemplate them when they are explained to us. In this, we can then truly begin to state what our minds have begun to grasp. How great thou art, O God.
Heavenly Father, you are great and you are glorious. And to think that you have all of the power, the infinite power available to you, and then you work it out in the salvation and perfection of human souls. What a great God you are to direct your power in such a way. You go on creating, you go on in wondrous deeds for the first six days of creation and everything is settled. And yet it was all directed for one purpose, is to create man so that we could have a relationship with you and to be glorified in you. And that could only be possible through the giving of your son, Jesus. And so we thank you for what you purposed when you created us and when we fell from you, that you would take care of that problem and bring us back to yourself so that we could witness your power and your strength and your majesty and your glory for all eternity and how we wait for that day when it will be possible. Until then, help us to keep our eyes open to the things you have done and to marvel at the world you've created and to do our best to be good stewards of it until you call us to your heavenly home. We pray these things that you will be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.